It is such a privilege to be back with you after, I think as I looked at my calendar, it was 14 years ago that I last preached. Uh, you can run, but you can't escape, can you? So it's just, it is really sweet to be able to reconnect with many friends here and to see how the Lord is working in this place and to rejoice with you, particularly on this wonderful Resurrection Day. I'm a, and I'm a little bit of a strange person in some ways. You might, if you get to know me, you'd say I'm strange in a lot of ways. But in one particular way, I'm strange because I really enjoy wandering around in graveyards. I like to look at monuments. I think some of them are fascinating. Some are quite plain, as you can tell. Some are simple. Some are very ornate. And we've been to places and have studied at times some of the amazing uh, cemeteries in the world, places that are just um, amazing. I think of our family being able to go at one point to Westminster Abbey in London. And it's renowned because it contains the remains of all these nobles and notables, and uh, the latest being most interesting to me, Stephen Hawkins, who was a, a very uh, amazing physicist, but a very self-avowed atheist. They are right in the dead center of the chapel. Um, Muhammad's tomb in Mecca. You've seen pictures of it, perhaps. The massive stone black coffin is fascinating with his bones interred in it. Napoleon's tomb is fascinating. Been there to see at Les which is in Paris, this rotunda with this amazing, amazing thing where Napoleon's remains are, are left. Arlington Cemetery. I mean, just lots of places. Arlington is a, an amazing place where... So many of our outstanding soldiers and dignitaries are buried. But, but the tomb of Jesus Christ is different. Um, it's distinct for one very important reason, and that's centered to where we are today. You see, all the other tombs are famous primarily for what they contain. But the tomb of Jesus Christ is famous specifically because of what it does not contain. The tomb of Jesus Christ is empty, and that is central to our celebration, along with millions of other believers in Jesus Christ around the world today. In this special way, we recognize that he lived a life, was crucified by Roman crucifixion, was killed and put in a tomb, and bodily rose from the dead to live ever after three days later. It's an incredible thing. It happened in documented, real-time history. And that's critical for us today as we come together to worship. So we don't ever want to forget. We have traditions, as you do, on Easter, perhaps. Lots of good food. Lots of fun with the children and little eggs and gifts and candy and all kinds of good things. But don't ever forget... The Easter Bunny didn't rise from the dead. Only Jesus did. So this morning I want to unpack a passage of Scripture that is just freighted with meaning for us. It's from God's letter through the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth. And we're going to look at the 15th chapter. Parts of it, it's too long for us to tackle. We couldn't do it if we wanted to in the time constraints that we have. But if you've got your Bible, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15... Beginning in verse 1, follow with me if you will. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Skip down with me to verse 12. Now if Christ is is proclaimed, is raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from from the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and, 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 and everything must reign until he has put all the enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Fathers, we open your word. We ask that you would open our hearts, that we would hear your speaking to us. And that you would encourage us by these words, draw us to yourself, and in this we give ourselves again to you. In your sweet and precious name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, if you're taking notes, I would encourage you to do it in three parts, and I'm going to follow this little brief outline. The first is I want to unpack, first of all, the reality of the resurrection, the historicity, authenticity to this for a moment. Then I want to talk a little bit about the reach of the resurrection, the, re- the reality of the resurrection, the reach of the resurrection, putting in a, a new inheritance for those who are in Christ Jesus, a new life. And third will be the results of the resurrection, redefining what it means to have hope in this life. So the reality, the reach, and the results. Let's talk about the reality of the resurrection. All of us here, including myself, have something in common with the uh, the Apostle Paul, and that is is that he was not one of the original 12 that walked with Jesus in his earthly ministry for those three years. He did not talk with him at that time. He did not observe what the Lord Jesus did and the miracles that he did and the teachings that he had. He was not present when the Lord came back from the dead immediately after that time when so many others did see the Lord Jesus and did talk to him and were a part of where he was. And yet Paul was absolutely convinced 
that Jesus was raised from the dead. You look at this passage in other places. In verse 20, he says, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. How could he be so convinced of this? Where did that conviction come from? Well, three things that I'd notice here, and perhaps there are other things too. The first is, is that Paul could have heard the testimony. He could have interacted. He could have listened to those who had been the eyewitnesses, who had seen, who had been there. Many of them were still alive and were able to tell him what they saw, whether he agreed with it at the first or not. But that was a testimony that he couldn't shake. This story that for so many was just unbelievable was really true. And there were people who had seen it and not only had seen it and believed it, but who had completely been transformed as a result of that encounter. We could talk about many. I think of Peter would be a a great example. Peter who denies the Lord Jesus just days before his crucifixion and resurrection. Who's scared to death that he's going to be associated and, and receive some sort of terrible consequence for having that association. He doesn't want to be known as one who followed Christ because of what might happen. And then he's one of the first ones who sees the resurrected Christ. And the man is transformed. So much so that he will go and he will stand up in a way that he never did before. In in the book of Acts in chapter 4, he's brought before the Sanhedrin with other believers. And the, the rulers of the people were saying, look, you stop talking about this Jesus. Threatening them. And Peter is the one who says, you do what you need to do. We have to keep speaking what we know to be the truth. And he will go on and live a life of service and teaching and a martyrdom himself for what he believes. Paul himself, secondly, had a conversion experience. We read about that in Acts chapter 9. He's on the Damascus Road. He's going after Christians. He wants to stamp out what he thinks is this heresy that needs to be eradicated. And he's absolutely obsessed to do that. And on the road to Damascus, he has an encounter with the risen Christ. And it absolutely stops him in his tracks, literally. Paul had a conversion experience himself to meet the Christ. In fact, he says something about this. He alludes to this in verses 8 and 9. Last of all is to one untimely born. Christ appeared also to me. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church. But boy, had he changed by this point. And I think we would add thirdly, too, that by the working of the Holy Spirit, this was a man who, Saul of Tarsus, was a Pharisee. He had memorized vast portions of what we call the Old Testament, the scriptures. And he had gotten all of the understanding of who the Messiah was to be. But now, all of a sudden, it's like the pieces of the puzzle come together. And he gets a picture. And he realizes that Jesus really is the Messiah promised in the scriptures. And he really is who he says he is. And now this man is so convinced of this that as he writes this letter by God's direction, this is what he says, and he makes no bones about it. This is absolutely crucial. It's not 
It's not incidental, verses 14 and 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And we're even found to be misrepresenting God. Verses 17 and 19, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Do you get the impact of what he's saying? He says, if the resurrection isn't true as a historic fact, what he basically says is we're victims of this hoax, this massive lie. And those that are in Christ Jesus are both victims and also perpetrators of passing on something that didn't happen, if it didn't happen. And Christians are just nothing more than con artists and hucksters. It's up or down. I mean, there's no sense about Paul that he's trying to make people feel comfortable with some sort of, uh, you know, addition to their lives of a little religious belief. Uh, I, uh, I read the Wall Street Journal, and several years ago they had a great little pepper and salt cartoon. I always go to that and enjoy it. Um, and, and this tongue-in-cheek thing is the man standing in front of this sage with the long beard, and the man says to the sage, he says, I don't necessarily want truth, I just want reassurance. Well, there are a lot of people who don't want necessarily have to grapple with truth. They just want to feel better. But that was not Paul. Paul was persuaded in the truth of the resurrection. The man who was once obsessed with persecuting and eradicating Christians has flipped 180, dedicating himself to teaching and preaching it to anybody who would listen, willing to go his whole life in humiliation, persecution, prison, and ultimately a martyr's death. No casual belief here. I don't know who made the comment. I think it applies to this. He said, you know, a belief is something that you hold, but a conviction is something that holds you. That was Paul. So if the resurrection really happened, as Paul insists in this, what difference does it make? So that takes us to the second thing. First is the evidence of the reality of the resurrection. Second, let's talk about the reach of the resurrection. What does it do? What does it mean? And, and we are given sort of a, a synopsis, a sort of collapsed Reader's Digest versus uh, uh, understanding what is expanded in other books of the Bible, in Romans and in Galatians. In verse 21 and 22, For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, what's he talking about that? About that? Just a little mini synopsis of this. To bring us up to speed to understand, the Bible tells us that the first people who were created, the first humans on this earth, were real people, Adam and Eve. And they had a real relationship with God. They actually saw God. They were with God. They were face-to-face in the garden, as it says. In relationship and interaction with God in a way that was because God created this and gave it to them. And they would have that as long as they were obedient to what God said in the simple commands that he gave them. Theologically, we call that the covenant of works. 
You do what I ask you to do. We stay in the relationship. It's simple. But they decided they knew better, and they decided they could get more, and they chose that path. And in doing so, their relationship with the one who was perfect and holy and righteous, who created them, it broke that relationship. And the damage of that would be not just for them, it would be for all those who would follow them. In the book of Romans, in chapter 5, it says, Sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have sinned. It's a cause and effect relationship. It passes down from Adam to all those who would follow him. It's what we refer to as the federal headship of Adam. Meaning his, his place at the beginning of the pyramid, as he was breaking that relationship, all those who would follow would find that destruction that would follow them as well. Now, if you're really thinking about this, at some point, I think you have to come and grapple with the question of, now, wait a minute, if this is really true, if that really happened, why should I bear the consequence of somebody else's mistake, of somebody else's sin? That doesn't seem fair. And that's, but that's what the Bible says happened. I think I can illustrate that fairly easily for us in some ways. If, the first thing that comes to mind is, is it's kind of a story that I heard once, a little Monty Python-ish type of story, and it kind of uh, brings up Sir, you know, King Arthur and the round table and his knights of the round table. And so Arthur's called the knights to come around it, and everybody's there except for Galahad. And Galahad comes in the door, and he's all disheveled, and he's, he's panting, and he finally plops himself down, and, and King Arthur says, Galahad, where have you been? And Galahad says, ah, oh, sire, he said, I've, I've been in the east fighting your enemies. I've been, I've been plundering and taking the spoils and destroying any resistance. And Arthur looks at him and says, I don't have any enemies in the east. And Galahad says, oh, well, you do now. I mean, we laugh at that, but you know, there's a reality to that as well, too. You more soberly, we could reflect on the ambitions and the leaderships of, you could name a lot of people, Adolf Hitler, Stalin, Idi Amin, Putin. One person's actions that lead countless others to participate in destruction. And the Bible says that it's worse than just physical destruction, that the the sin and rebellion of Adam as our federal head had a trickle-down effect that affected our spiritual, if you want to call it the DNA, our, our spirit being with him that would flow through all subsequent generations. That as a result of that, we would be cut off from God, which in a min- is, is, is in a sense a great part of the definition of what it means to die. Death is a matter of separation, of being cut off. Spiritual death is what it talks about here, as well as physical death. 
mean, it's a bleak situation. But it's not the end of the story. So there's also good news in this as we follow through this too. The federal headship principle works the other way too, for good. One person's actions can actually be the catalyst, the influence, in order for great good for many people to come from that. One of my heroes in history is a man named William Wilberforce. In the early 1800s, was a man who who was raised in privilege, he had great wealth, a, a family of great influence, and just on a whim, he decided he wanted to be a part of parliament, but he frittered his life away in and, and the good life, and God worked in his heart and started drawing him to himself through his minister that he encountered, a man named John Newton of Amazing Grace fame. And even at the beginning of it, Wilberforce would go to Newton's house to learn about Jesus, much like Nicodemus did during the night. He didn't want people to know because he had one reputation out there, but then he was coming to Christ. And as that took a grip on his life, as he became a believer, he began to be discipled by Newton to grow in the scriptures, and he came to a a conviction that slavery was wrong. And he began himself to speak out against it and to lobby against it. And he was met with enormous opposition. There were so many people who thought that it was absolutely necessary and critical for their huge economic engine to have slavery. Boy, we could never get rid of that. Absolutely no way. And yet he persisted and he was relentless and he was shunned and he was opposed and he was hated. And yet he knew it was the truth, and he pressed for it. And only just a couple of years before he died, the law was actually passed that ended the slave trade in England. Now, here's the point. Many historians make make the observation that because of that one man's influence, it is very likely that the country of England, Great Britain, did not go through an internal civil war over slavery like we did a few years later. In stark contrast to the damning of the federal headship of Adam, the federal headship of Jesus Christ in his obedience restores life for all who are found in him. Verse 21, in one man, Adam, all are condemned to death. Verse 22, but in Christ shall all be made alive, brought back into that relationship. So what does that mean for us? How does that apply for us today? So we look at the the reality of the resurrection. We talk about the reach of the resurrection. Let's talk about the results of the resurrection. I like what Dr. J.I. Packer said. He made a comment once. He said, if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, he can be your model. He can be your great teacher. He can even be your hero. But he cannot be your savior. To save us from our sin. To restore us in the relationship with God. To have life both now and for eternity. Jesus had taught that as part of what God brought him in to understand about what it meant to have this life. 
John chapter 11, verse 26, Jesus taught his disciples, he said, Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. In my sanctified imagination, I just have this picture of the disciples kind of looking at each other over their glasses and scratching their head and going, what does that mean? I mean, people die. What do you mean, whoever believes me will never die? How does that work? Could it not be that Jesus explains to them that there's a broader understanding of what it means to die? A new understanding that death is not the separation or the cessation of life, but separation in life. It's not the end. I mean, you, could, you could go no further than Jesus himself as an illustration of this. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, he died. He really died, but he didn't evaporate. He didn't disappear. He still existed. But he was, for the first and only time of all eternity, separated from God the Father and God the Spirit. And in that separation was excruciating pain. Total alienation, total isolation. Can you only have a glimpse in your mind of the blackness of being completely alone. That's what he did. He took that on himself so that those who were found in him wouldn't have to. So when we think about this, the, the whole concept of death for believers takes on a whole new meaning. Death is, re, in reality, a doorway. Wonderful story, allegory, C.S. Lewis, St. C.S., Clive Staples Lewis. C.S. Lewis wrote uh, Chronicles of Narnia, just for fun. We read it many times with our children as they would come along. During the pandemic, my wife Denise and I actually did, for whatever, I don't know why we did it, we just thought it might be interesting to do, we pulled off the last battle, the seventh in the series, and we read it to each other out loud with voices and it was wonderful it brought up so many pictures in our mind of the doorway between this reality and the next reality Jesus told his disciples I go to prepare a place for you 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 8 to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord not waiting, it's immediate, it's conscience, it's the essence of our soul transitioning from being in this present world to being in the company of God and other believers who've gone before us. Raised one day in perfection as God has planned to give us a new heaven and a new earth. This, this section of scripture, just read a little bit more further down, it's a section of scripture that we use for funerals for those who are believers. In verses 51 and following, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. I like to think of that as South Mississippi Hebrew. Listen up, folks. You can't fully understand what, what, what I'm telling you, but, but you can trust me. This is really going to happen. We shall not sleep. 
but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? We sang that in our first hymn, Charles Wesley's wonderful hymn. I think the story of the, the little boy who was allergic to bee stings, like really allergic to bee stings, like deadly allergic to bee stings. And he was riding with his dad in the car, and the window was down because the weather was beautiful, and to his horror, a bee flew into the car. And as soon as the little boy saw it, he started saying, Daddy, the bee, there's a bee in the car, Daddy. Do something, Daddy. There's a bee. And his father looked over, saw the bee, reached out and grabbed the bee with his hand. And as he did that, the little boy took a deep sigh of relief and said, Thank you, Daddy. And a moment later, his father opened his hand up and the bee flew out again. And the little boy saw it and he started screeching, Daddy, why did you do that, Daddy? And his father said, Son, don't worry about that bee anymore. He can't hurt you. See, I've got his stinger right here in my hand. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? You know what God is saying to Paul? Don't fear death. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about Jesus taking on these same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Here in this passage, verses 25 and 26, Jesus must reign until he's put, on all, his, put all his enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. You know, what, you know what Paul is saying? He's saying Satan is just a bully. He's a saber-rattling deceiver. Who wants to deceive you and to intimidate you into believing that this world is all there is. And that death is the worst thing that can happen. Not true. So where does that lead us? A few thoughts as we start to wrap some of this wonderful passage together. Verse 57, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Need I remind you that in order to have victory, you first have to have a battle? It's kind of a bogus victory if you haven't really had a fight. And there really are many real battles in this life. There are many difficulties. There are many disappointments. There's much grief. There are the real things that we have to grapple with, too. There's war, tornadoes, the senseless killing of covenant children in a Christian school. 
you add to the list. You know what? We, we would love, wouldn't we love it? Somehow we want, you know, God just beam me up. Get me out of here, Scotty. I don't want to have to deal with this. Lord, would you just wrap me around with some sort of divine bubble wrap, please? Put some sort of force field. Protect me and my children and my family. Just don't let it. We don't. Please. You know, somebody made the quip one time. They said in the war, the military may give hardship exemptions, but God doesn't. Jesus told his disciples, he said, in this world, you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. He's with us to direct and correct our paths as we follow him, to enable us to find the strength and the guidance, even peace when the battles are raging. And not just the battles from the outside, from the inside as well. And he promises to be with us. The empty tomb is the promise that there's there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ, not even death. I love Vance Havner. Ministers have other ministers that they admire for whatever, and Vance Havner for his wonderful walk with the Lord and his great sense of humor. He was a man who loved his wife, and uh, she died 22 years, I believe it does, before he did. And it was hard. And somebody made the comment one time to him. They said, you know, we're, we're so sorry you've lost your wife. <laughs> and he smiled and he said, well, thank you, but I haven't lost her. I know exactly where she is. We're just separated right now. He's with us. How does it affect us? For us as believers... The exhortation Paul writes, this is a man who's going through all kinds of difficulties himself. He says, therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. He's going to work these things together for good. I was in college a hundred years ago, at least now, but um, back and went to Auburn. Harvard of the South, Oxford of America, Yale out yonder, whatever you want to call it. But as a student, undergraduate student, they would have, because we didn't have Netflix and any of that kind of stuff, they would show films for the students that were in the old Langdon Hall, this this creaky old building that is still there. It's kind of a monument. Uh, we used to laugh and say the only reason it stands is because termites were holding hands. But it was a building that was, we'd go and we'd sit. And we went just for something to do. I went with a friend to watch an Alfred Hitchcock movie. And about two-thirds of the way through the movie, as Alfred Hitchcock can do, I mean, I was about to jump out of my skin. I was just so uptight watching the movie. And I turned and looked at my friend, and he was sitting there just as peaceful and just smiling. And I was thinking, I remember thinking, so are you nuts? What, what is going on with you? And after the movie was over, I said, why were you smiling? I mean, this is crazy. Why were you smiling? And he said, well, true confession. He said, I've read the story before. I know how it ends. We know how it ends, too. We know because God tells us there's a time in which God says, 
Revelation chapter 1. At that point, he's going to wipe away every tear. Death will be no more. There won't be mourning. There won't be crying. There's no more pain for the former things have passed away. That's the end. But the nasty here and now is even sweeter in some ways. Because as we're walking through this, as a believer, because Jesus was raised from the dead, he is with us as we go through this. Hebrews 7 says that he's with us to make intercession for us. He comes alongside of us. What do you think Jesus did when he was raised from the dead? He didn't take a victory lap, sit down, grab a Coke and a bag of popcorn and say, okay, I've done my part, you do yours. He's at work. He comes alongside us through his spirit and his word. He energizes us to know him in a fuller and deeper way and to grow in that and to, to go in that, if you want to put it that way, to live a life in obedience as he energizes us, as he teaches us to anticipate and discover everything that he says is true. There's, there's a great line. Louis L'Amour wrote a, a gazillion Western stories. I, I Wikipedia'd it. In Louis L'Amour's Westerns, he wrote over 100 novels and over 400 stories. But the end of one of them is particularly poignant to me because it's not only an interesting ending, but it is theologically correct too. At the end of one of his great Western stories, he said, everything I tell you in this story is true. Only some of it hasn't had time to happen just yet. That's where we live. And I want to just say a word for some of you. Some of you may be here on Easter because your family just comes and you don't really want to be here and you don't really believe this stuff. But you're here. Thank you. Thanks for listening. But I could ask you to challenge yourself to ask questions to consider that perhaps the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just some faint, quaint story of something that happened long ago that really has nothing to do with now, but that maybe God is using this to draw you to himself. To just have this gnawing sense in you that something about this, it's just something about this. And in that, that you would, you would see that he offers you life, the beginning of a new life. It's not pie in the sky when you die. It's now, and it goes on to then. If any man is in Christ, it says in Scripture, he's a new creation. Old has passed away, the new has come. And God offers to that. But you have to respond to that yourself. Remember something. God has no grandchildren. He only has children. It's not because somebody's parents were believers that we're somehow going to slide in to heaven. It's not because somebody's spouse is particularly spiritual and I'll just let that suffice for us. No, it says for those who received him personally, individually, to them he gives the right to become the children of God. God has no grandchildren. But it also tells you that when you come into that relationship... 1 John 5 says, these things are written, these things are put here. This life is given so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not wish, not hope, but to know. So for all of us, 
particularly for us as believers, as we come together and we worship and we celebrate what God has done for us and continues to do for us, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be grateful. But I want you to have a sense of anticipation that even as we have grateful hearts and we struggle with these things, that you know that God is at work and that whatever we have, the tough things, even the wonderful good things, are nothing in comparison to what he has for us. The best is yet to come. I close with a little story that I heard of the lady who was a Christian and her gift was cooking. I love that ministry. Man's heart. heart. <laughs> she was a great cook. And her ministry was having people over to sit at her table and to feed them and to encourage them. And she was a good cook, but she was a killer good dessert maker. And people would be invited, and they couldn't wait because almost always as they would finish this great meal that she had given them and they were enjoying the food and the fellowship together, she would come and she said, now, if if y'all would help me clear the table, y'all do that and we'll get ready. She said, but hold on to your forks because the best is yet to come. And years later, she, she died. And so many people came out for her funeral and and the wake and the visitation time. And as people passed by the casket with her body lying in the casket, all those in the know, as they'd walk by, they'd look down at the body, and then they'd break into a big grin. Because there she was with her fingers folded over her chest, and interlaced in between her fingers was a table fork. As if to say, hold on to your forks. The best is yet to come. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, nor has it even entered into the heart of man what God has for those who love him. Isn't it amazing to be a believer? Our wonderful Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the fact that through this it comes alive to understand the realities that are ours even now. Thank you that you sent your Son, our Savior, to die for us. That you would raise him from the dead. That in that assurance and in his life to intercede for us, we have life now and life eternal. Father, draw us close to yourself, that in this we would see you as you are and love you all the more, and that you would be glorified in and through our hearts as we praise and honor you with our lives. We pray this in your precious and wonderful name, Lord Jesus. Amen.